This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. So, today, I'd like to talk to you about money. I know, it's an exciting topic, uh, and one of those things that you're not really supposed to talk about, you know? But the Bible does talk about it. And actually, the verse that we're reading today is that famous verse, maybe you've heard it, God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. I don't know if you've ever read that verse or heard it, but I wonder what it makes you feel. Are you kind of like, yeah, I'm a cheerful giver. I got it. Or are you more like, I could probably be a little bit more cheerful in my giving. Giving and generosity we know is taught in Scripture, and yet it's also exceptionally hard to live out, right? And what I mean by that is this, the who, what, where, when, why, and how of giving. How do we evaluate all the things that are coming at us and and when and how we should give? But the Bible is not silent on this either. The Bible talks about generosity and why we should do it And that is what we're going to be studying today. Now, this verse, God loves a cheerful giver, comes in the context of a big letter called 2 Corinthians. And we're going to be reading a large section of it today, but I wanted to give you some context before we read it. Paul is going to be asking the Corinthian church for money. The Corinthian church was very wealthy. Uh, It was located in southern Greece, and it was on an isthmus, and so it was just a port city, and there was a lot of wealth flowing through. It had a lot of Uh, potential for upward mobility, a lot of new money. Uh, One of the wealthiest churches in the first century would have been in Corinth, okay? So Paul is writing to Corinth, and he's saying, I would like you to give to the poor churches in Jerusalem. Now, if you've thought about Christianity for a while, you go, wait a second, the church started in Jerusalem, so like the mother church is in Jerusalem, and the mother church is hurting? What exactly is going on in Jerusalem? Well, Let me just summarize some things that are going on for the churches in Jerusalem really quickly. One is just supply and demand issues of being kind of in a mountainous region. Uh, Studies seem to show that food might cost four to six times as much in that city than it would be down where the food was actually produced to haul it in and everything else. So it was just expensive to live there. But the next thing was oppressive taxes, not just by the Romans, but also by the Jews for the maintenance of their religious order. But it conflates with this last point, which is a lot of these Christians in the first century that would have been in the Jerusalem church would have at one time been Jewish. And when you converted to this new religion and sect, there was often a lot of loss of connections, relationships, and employment opportunities. The people in the mother church were struggling to survive. The churches in Corinth were unbelievably wealthy. But there's one more character we're going to read about in this story, and that's the Macedonians. Now, if you think of uh, Macedon or Macedonian, you're probably thinking of Greece, and you're like, wait a second, Corinth is in Greece. In this time, Macedonia referred to the northern part of Greece, and Achaia would refer to the southern part of Greece. We'll talk about that a little later. Don't need to get crazy. Just think of Greece. Northern part's Macedonia. Southern part would include Corinth down there called Achaia. Um, The Macedonian churches seem to also be very poor, but maybe not quite as religiously persecuted as you would find in Jerusalem. Maybe they had a little bit more freedom. Now, as we study Paul's request for money, I hope that it becomes clear to us what Paul's reason is for Christian generosity, how he underpins all of these questions of who, what, where, when, why, and how. 
So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to start in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to read through verse 15, and I'm actually going to skip uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So we're going to skip the last part of chapter 8 and the beginning part of chapter 9. Uh, they're important to read. I would encourage you to do so, but um, for the sake of brevity, we're going to skip, skip over those just so you know. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for, for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to, de to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you should be burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness." As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. And we're skipping to chapter 9, verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way and to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So we're here exploring the reason for Christian generosity, and I want to start with the question of how we give. Um, it is one of the questions I receive most often as a pastor, believe it or not. Pastor, how much should I give? 10%, 20%? Are taxes like, uh, are, are, is generosity like tax brackets? Based on a certain amount of adjusted household income, I should give more or less. We're looking for a number, and the Bible just doesn't give it to us. The Bible gives us a disposition. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. 
We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed with a wealth of generosity. Okay, a wealth of generosity. That's great. How much was it, Paul? (laughs) How much did the Macedonians give? Verse 3, they gave according to their means. Not just this, though, beyond their means. Verse 5, and this was not as we expected. It was a surprise to us. Accordingly, Paul says in verse 6, we send Titus to you so that he should complete among you this act of grace. I'm just going to water, like, boil this down real quick to, to what Paul is getting at. He's looking at the Corinthians and he's saying, hey, you know your northern neighbors who are impoverished and have almost nothing? They surprised us with how much they gave and their earnestness for wanting to give it. And so we're going to send you Titus to make sure that you guys do the same thing. Now, does that sound like a little manipulative to you? (laughs) A little disingenuine? Because it did to me when I first read it. But it seems here that culturally speaking, Paul is actually approaching the subject in a way that was dignifying, not only to the Macedonians who were poor, but also to the Corinthians who were rich. And it goes like this. The Corinthians were rich, but, but they knew they had problems. And if you remember our sermon series in 1 Corinthians, you can remember some of those problems. And frankly, we share many of the same problems. Wealth, sexuality, divisiveness. Three big ones that Paul has to write again and again to the Corinthians. They knew what their problems were, but it seems that at this point in the story, and at this point in the letter, they were aware of their problems and were trying to do the right thing. What's the next right thing I can do? And Paul says, you've already been excelling in everything, in your faith, in your speech, in your knowledge, in your earnestness, in your love, but you have one more thing you need to excel at. Generosity. Paul is telling them that the next step is to give according to and beyond their means. If the people who have almost nothing can beg Paul to participate in relief efforts with what little they have, how much more the Corinthians? Now, Paul didn't intend to shame the Corinthians either, but to encourage them to be the kind of people that see the needs of others, and orient their entire financial life around those needs and give not just according to their own budgets, but also beyond them. Now, maybe you read that and you say, wait a second, was Paul saying that like the Macedonians were doing something risky with their budget, right? Like, what do you mean you're giving beyond your means? Uh, What exactly that means? Um, Paul does not mean that the Macedonians or the Corinthians ought to go into debt um, or make reckless decisions. What Paul meant by beyond their means was actually an orderly setting aside that was then blessed by God to be larger than they thought possible. We didn't read uh, chapter 8, verse 16 uh, through 9, 5, and it's very important. I'm going to summarize it real quick here. 8, 16 through 24 is about accountability with finances. Paul says he's going to send Titus, but he's also going to send another brother because, you know, dual accountability. So sometimes we think that like church finances are like this spiritual thing that doesn't, but Paul recognizes the need for, uh, spir- for accountability, financial accountability. But 9, 1 through 5 talks about that they should set up an orderly collection. And the idea was this, that at the end of every working day or working week or working month, they would actually set aside the money for this offering that would only be collected once every couple years or so. It's a little bit unclear how often uh, this collection for the saints in Jerusalem happened, but it seems that it happened a couple of times over the span of of four or five years or so. And so Paul is 
consistently sending people around to these churches to collect on behalf of the saints in Jerusalem. So they need to regularly plan to set aside money. And in that setting aside of that money, God will grow it to be beyond what they thought possible. Paul understood the necessity of financial accountability and planning. And Paul's entire argument is so that they should plan to give, not so that they could give less, but so that they could give more. Beyond their means for Paul meant that God had blessed their faithful setting aside of what little they had. The Macedonians set aside this little amount week after week, and when the collection finally came, they were shocked by how much that they had. Even so, Paul was surprised, not as we expected. It was more. They begged us to be a part of it, even though we looked at them, the poor Macedonians, and we said, you guys shouldn't be giving us anything at all. They begged to be a part of it. The first thing that we learned from this passage is that we ought to plan to give according to our means, but strive to give beyond them. Not not so that we can give the least amount possible, but the most amount possible. Now, down to earth, what does this mean for you and me? Uh, Just like a a fun fact, uh, I'm I'm not regularly involved uh, in the church day-to-day finances, uh, but when it comes to year-end giving receipts and stuff, uh, we need kind of an all-hands-on-deck sort of situation. And as we kind of run reports and see how giving works in the church, uh, without doubt, the people that give regularly and have it set up tend to give the most. The people who give regularly, I would venture to say, are probably the ones who are on the tightest budgets. <laughs> they have to set it aside. They have to give it aside. And, they, and they, they set it aside and they budget for it as soon as they get it, and then they're surprised by how much they give. But this is not the only way. I know that a lot of us don't, are not day laborers like the Macedonians, right, who would have gotten paid every day and then set aside their little amount. Uh, most of us get paid once a month or quarter or yearly. We're not even quite sure where we stand. And yet, even among some of you, I have seen the desire to give according to and beyond your means, creatively thinking of ways to set aside that money so that it grows to become more impactful than you thought possible. The goal, though, is not to see how little money we can set aside each year, but how much we can set aside. How do Christians give? According to and beyond their means. But it's not just about how we give, it's why we give. You know, charity is not unique to Christians. Uh, Many of the major world religions prioritize charity, and a quick Google search on why be charitable will result a lot of similar answers. So I just pulled this from one site. It said that you'll have greater satisfaction with life, more friends stronger relationships with people that they already know, a greater happiness in their career and a more positive outlook, better mental and physical health, contentment, and higher self-esteem. Many of these the Bible also affirms are true, but the Bible actually gives a fundamentally different reason for being generous, and that is so that you might be holy. Not so that you can experience some of these things which you might, but so that you might be holy. Now, when you think of the word holy, um, I don't know about you, but I you know, think of the Pope, Uh, or Mother Teresa, or the Dalai Lama, or I think of maybe negatively, you know, these self-righteous people that are holier than thou, and we're like, I don't really want to be holy, but the Bible doesn't quite speak that way about holiness, right? It says we should strive to be holy. The Bible defines holiness as being set apart for a particular purpose. We sanctify regular objects to make them holy for a particular use, just like a surgeon might sterilize something for a particular use. It's sanctified, right? Right? Even though we might use a knife anywhere, you need a particular kind of knife 
treated in a particular kind of way to be safe for that action. The Bible says that you are holy, made in God's image, His representative and image bearer. And so just like Christians refrain from sin in order to be holy, they sanctify themselves, they also strive to give in order to sanctify themselves. Now, I've got to be really careful here because this has been misused throughout Christian history. Um, we can think about the Reformation recently and about how uh, church leaders have leveraged uh, financial donations for spiritual benefit. And I just want to be clear that that's not what I'm talking about here. And yet, Paul here is saying that the giving of your money is a tangible way to be more holy. Not because it forces God to do anything on your behalf, forgive some particular sins, or, or puts him in your debt. Not because he's got to return it later like some weird sort of karma. Uh, not because uh, it just makes you feel better and you're just looking for those same things that our world experiences. No, there's something fundamental about giving your money away that actually makes you a holier person and more dependent upon God himself. And this is what Paul talks about. In verse 8, he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove. Prove what? At the end of that verse, that your love is genuine. Love of who? Verse 9, Jesus Christ. Your generosity proves your love of Jesus Christ. Verses 9 through 10 unpack the sanctifying nature of giving money away. In verse 9, he says that Jesus Christ began this work in you, right? He began to start this process of sanctification. Verse 10 says that it's a benefit for you. Generosity is a benefit for you. So finish it well, verse 11, that you can complete what Jesus has started, that you might be holy. Now, we don't do this apart from the Holy Spirit's help and all this other stuff, um, but you can read about Paul in other places of his letters saying that you need to now work out your salvation, right? It's not a works-based salvation. It's all by grace. It's a gift from God, and yet you're supposed to use this gift of generosity to be holier. Jesus, by his work, set you on a course of Christ-likeness that in his power, by his plan, will come to a completion by the power of his Holy Spirit because God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So not just that you started giving generously, but that you desire to give generously. Did you hear that when we read the passage? And I know I'm getting uh, like kind of lost in theological weeds here, but I, I want to make sure that I'm clear. Um, so I'm going to try to say it a little bit clearer. You guys know when Jesus talks about serving two masters, he says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And the two masters he's talking about are God and money. You cannot serve God and money, Jesus says. We're a lot like the Corinthians. We want to try to serve money. We know what it affords us. We know the comforts and the rights, and we, we, we trust in it so much to provide for us that which only God can. The Corinthians knew the comforts that their money could, could, could provide. They knew the travel that they could experience on beautiful Roman roads. They knew the political influence that they could get through lobbying and whining and dining Roman politicians if they weren't Roman politicians themselves. They could maybe be made aware that economic downturns were in the future, and so they wanted a desire to insulate themselves with their money, saving up for a rainy day, you know what I mean? But giving their money away forced them to admit that although they have agency in these situations, they do not have control. 
Although we have agency in our world, we do not have control. My wife and I have been talking about this a lot recently because there are so many situations outside of money um, where we try to control every little aspect, you know? You stay awake, awake at night, like, churning through the ideas of, like, how can, I, how can I make this work to my advantage? There's this conflict. How do I stand in here? We do the same thing with money. For an example, um, like, three to six months of savings, right? It's like a generally advised rule. Um, although the Bible says that we have agency to have three to six months savings, for example, we don't have control over economic downturn. Only God does. I may have agency to plan for and save for a restful vacation, but I do not have control over my own real rest. Only God does. If I'm restless, He's the one I'm supposed to go to. Although I have agency in the political process through casting my vote, I do not have control over the political process. Only God does. I may have agency to alleviate symptoms of poverty here and now, but I do not have control over poverty. Only God does. Giving our money away beyond my means, again, like what we talked about before, not, not recklessly or foolishly, but uh, putting it away, poco a poco, saving it up, Giving our money away means that I get to put my money where my mouth is. Because we can sing up here that Jesus is our everything. And yet our money would tell a different story. Vastly different story. Giving our money away is an act of sanctification which tangibly forces us to acknowledge something that is so easy to say with our lips, but so hard to say with our actions. God is my everything. Is your money where your mouth is? When we give according to and beyond our means, it forces us to deny that wealth gives us any real control in the world. The only one who has real control in the world is God. Again, giving our money away doesn't force God to do anything. It doesn't uh, force God to, to make us holy, you know, in some weird transactional sense. It's an act that makes us more holy because the Holy Spirit said it would, where we may share in some of the same feelings as non-believers who are charitable. We may uh, experience greater friendship and higher self-esteem, etc., but only Christians will actually become more holy and not some uh, ethereal, nondescript holiness, right? But the holiness as Bible describes it, which is those who bow down before a sovereign God and King whose entire lives say, not my wealth, but yours. Giving it away forces us to acknowledge it, though. But this brings us to our last point. So how do Christians give according to and beyond their means? Why do Christians give to accomplish a transformation within themselves, to make them more dependent upon God himself? And our last point is, to whom do Christians really give? You know, I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon that it can be really hard to give money away, uh, and as I was kind of researching some things, what came up recently is that Jeff Bezos uh, is giving away his billions, right? And one thing he was quoted for uh, is that he said it was going to be really hard to do. He said something along the lines of, you have to have a team of the smartest people in the world, presumably working on the hardest problems, uh, so that his hard-earned money is leveraged appropriately. It was his money to make sure that it was used most powerfully. Now, uh, maybe that rubs us the wrong way or something like that, but I think we actually all experience the same sentiment. I don't know if you've ever been asked to give to XYZ ministry or, or thing, and maybe you give to this missionary, right, but you find out later that they had to come off the field, 
or the ministry thing just didn't quite take and it failed? Doesn't it feel like maybe we wasted that money? The Bible supports due diligence, right, of investigating kind of where we're giving to make sure that it's a reliable and, and God-centered organization. But at some point, I think we're just making excuses. And I think it's most apparent when we voice the sentiment that it's harder to give our money away than it was to make it in the first place. Have you ever, like, you ever felt that way? It's harder to give our money away than it was to make it in the first place. If you just, like, pause and think about that sentence, it seems ludicrous, Right? I mean, I know many of you worked very hard for your money, and to give it away is somehow harder. Now, of course, with greater money uh, is going to come a greater reason for due diligence, right? Bezos is going to have to pay a team of people to vet organizations, but Bezos also has an abundance to give from. Why are, do we and Bezos find it so hard to give away our money? And do you know what the Bible says? It's because we love it. We don't want to see our money misused. We want to see our money used to the maximum effect. After all, I worked hard for it. We struggle to give away freely something of ours that we worked so hard for. But Christians, the money was never yours in the first place. And the person that you're giving it back to is not who you think it is, but you're giving it to God to use as he sees fit. And I got, I got to be honest here. Um, God is often wasteful in ways that we find embarrassing. If I could just take an extreme example, he gave us his son for us, his enemies. But I want to tackle these two things. Um, first, the money was not really ours. Second, we give it back to God. So first, the money is not really ours. Paul quotes the Old Testament two times in our passages. I'm going to focus on the one in chapter 8, verse 15. And this is a quote from Exodus about God providing manna in the wilderness. I'm just gonna, we got to do another historical uh, excerpt here. If you guys remember, uh, the, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, and Moses came up and he said, let my people go, and there was 10 plagues, right? And they came out to the Red Sea, and it parted, and they walked through, and he drowned Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. But then, if you've ever looked at a map, across from Egypt is a desert. That's where they ended up. They're in the desert with no food, and they immediately start grumbling, and they say, what are we supposed to eat? And God sends manna, and he sends quail, and the manna would come with like the dew in the morning, and it appears... Um, that when it came in the morning, there would be more or less of it in different places. And so all of Israel would have to go out and they'd have to collect every morning. And they'd go collect this man and they'd pick it up off the ground. But sometimes you'd come into an area of the field one day and you'd be like, wow, there's a lot of manna here. And you just, you'd have a ton of manna. But here's the thing about manna. God said, you have to depend upon me daily for it. So God caused it to spoil that day. You could only collect enough for the day. If you kept it, it would get moldy and, and uh, bugs and worms would start coming out of it. You could not keep it. Right? So what would happen is they'd go out and they'd collect, and then they'd see the people who maybe went to another area of the field, and they said, oh man, there's, there's like no manna here. And they're like walking around for miles, and they're trying to grab it, and they just don't have enough for their family. And they'd be like, I got plenty. Here you go. Boom. And it was, Paul's using this to illustrate our own wealth, to set an analogy for our own wealth. First, God provides the wealth that you collect. You don't manufacture wealth. Just like the Israelites don't manufacture manna. Again, you have agency, but not control. You gather it, which is your faithful duty as a creature of God, but wealth, just like the manna, spoils. Maybe not at the end of every day, but at the end of every lifetime. The Bible is replete. Maybe you recognize some of these. It spoils, it rusts, thieves break in and steal, moths destroy, children squander, nations rise and fall. We are all dependent upon God for our daily bread and sustenance, just like the Israelites were. The wealth was never ours in the first place. 
And so we can freely give, especially to the household of faith. But maybe you read through this passage and you you heard those words about fairness and everybody being equal and you thought, man, is this some like weird thing of like socialism or communism or something? And it's not that, but it's definitely not pure free market capitalism either. What we received from God, we give back to God. Now, of course, God doesn't need our money, right? God has all of creation. Um, we, we, we give it to the church, and it's used for other things, right? But why do we give it? And Paul talks about this as praise. Paul didn't just want to motivate the Christians to be generous on the basis of their own holiness, but he also wanted to motivate them on who they were really giving to. Chapter 9, verse 12, for the ministry of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, which is true, it does supply the needs of others, which should give you some form of comfort, but also overflows in many thanksgivings to God. Paul's point throughout the next three verses is that the Corinthians' gift will actually supply the needs of the saints, but maybe even more importantly, it will increase thanksgiving to God. The Westminster uh, Catechism, Shorter Catechism, its first question is this. It says, what is man's chief end? Chief end is a weird word, but what are we here for? Uh, Why do we exist? What's the meaning of life? And you know, Hitchhiker's Guide of the Galaxy, is it 42? Seems like an insufficient answer for the Bible, so Westminster Shorter Catechism has a better one. Uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism says, man's chief end, our purpose, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Full of praise and thanksgiving, glorify and enjoy. Westminster talks about our purpose. Our purpose in this life is not the accumulation of wealth. Our only purpose in this life that will be truly satisfying is doxology. And that's a you know, Christian word. We sing the doxology up here, uh, but it just means uh, praise to God, right? And if you know the doxology in English, the first words are this, praise God from whom all blessings flow. When you give according to and beyond your means for the holy transformation of your own life so that the praise of God might increase, you will be living just like the Macedonians did. And just like the Corinthians ought to. So to whom do Christians really give? They give to God. Now, this doesn't mean that, again, we just give blindly and we don't care where it goes. It, 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 we, we do due diligence, but our due diligence is our agency. We must yield control. Even though it may appear wasted in our eyes, uh, God does not waste the gifts that are given to Him. We are giving money to God, not to Trinity Church, not to the Boys and Girls Club, not to whatever other ministries that you give to. When Christians give, they give to God for His glory so that thanks might be given to Him. Christians give for doxology. And that sums up the very end of our passage, chapter 9, verse 15. Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. Paul gives thanks to God because He gave the gift of generosity. This is a lot of giving. You hanging with me here? God gave a gift of generosity to the Corinthians, so that they might give a gift that brings glory back to God, <laughs> so that they might, they might participate in bringing doxology to God. We read in Romans 5.25 that it seems that the Corinthians actually did what Paul asked. It says this, Paul says, at present, I'm going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia, remember Achaia was that southern part of Greece that included Corinth, Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. 
Although we've covered the how, the why, and the who of Christian giving, we really need to understand the ultimate reason Christians give. And the ultimate reason Christians give is because they are so secure in Jesus. Jesus Christ is their comfort. They don't need an abundance of wealth. Jesus Christ is their sanctification. Jesus Christ is the one from whom they receive and to whom they give back. Christians can really and truly give away their wealth because in Jesus, they already have everything they could want, and it cannot be changed, shaken, or stolen. Jesus has given us his love according to and beyond his means because while we were still enemies, he died for us. Jesus is also the one who sanctifies us, who brings us by the power of his death and resurrection from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, set apart for a holy purpose by his work. Jesus is the one who brings all glory to the Father, who when the Father rends the heavens and looks down, he says, behold, my son in whom I'm well pleased. But Jesus does this by rescuing us and involving us in his process of praising the Father. This is how we become truly human. In Jesus, we have nothing to fear in body or soul, life and death, and so we follow his pattern of living into the world because of what he's already done for us. When we give according to and beyond our means, when we forsake the desire to make money our own God and rely upon Jesus alone, and when our entire lives are doxological, we are enjoying true humanness as God made it to be fully dependent upon him, with zero split allegiances, fully secure in the salvation that we have in Christ. And so when we get there, as we continually throughout our entire lives work on sanctification and putting to death other sins and being generous and doing all the other things that, that, um, that the Bible commands, what we are striving for in this aspect of holiness is to be truly human again. So that we might say with Paul, Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift of generosity that makes us truly human in Christ Jesus. Amen? Jesus knew that the only way for us to be truly human was for us to be rescued, uh, and it was going to take a great cost. According to and beyond uh, his own means, it was going to take his very life. And so in this meal, we remember those very things. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and having blessed it, he broke it, he turned and he gave it to his disciples as I am ministering in his name, now give it to you. And Jesus said to them, take this bread and eat it. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the remission of the sins of many. Take and drink. This meal is for anyone who is a member in good standing of an evangelical church. If that doesn't describe you, we don't want you to leave. Um, but please make use of the prayer that's printed in your bulletin. Uh, and if you've got any questions about that, uh, any of the staff or myself would love to talk to you more about that later. Um, please, please find us. My number's in the bulletin uh, and also my email. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we can come down the center aisle and go to these serving stations on my right and my left. Uh, Gluten-free is over here on my left. If you require that, please head that way. Just notify your server. And then you can partake of red wine or clear grape juice. Please take according to your conscience. If you would, please pray with me. King Jesus, we are about to partake of sanctified elements. 
And we ask that these ele- these, this common bread and wine uh, that was set apart for a holy purpose might work something within us that might give us more security in you so that we could have greater generosity. Holy Spirit, we ask you to sanctify these elements for their holy use, to nourish us spiritually, to embolden us to be generous where we would rather be stingy. Father, we ask that you would allow us to truly be human, that as we taste this reminder of Christ's broken body and his shed blood, that we might come to greater security in who he is for us and that it can never be taken. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.